Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 193. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell from our Zone Radio studios in Bangor. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We've got not just two, but three conversations for you this week. A little bonus content on Downtown the Podcast. Coming up a little bit later on, we'll talk with Rock and Roll Hall of Famer John Lodge of the Moody Blues. Got a brand new live album. We'll talk a bit about that and his time with the Moody's. We'll talk with actor Matthew Delamater, who lives in Maine, but found his way into the new movie from director George Clooney, starring Ben Affleck, The Tender Bar. We'll talk with him about that, but we uh, get things underway on the podcast this week with a little musical flashback for you, which I am sure you will remember. How could you not remember? (laughs) Massive hit in 1969 for the Archies, cartoon characters, but a real-life singer, Ron Dante, doing the lead vocals on that one. It was a big year, 1969. Ron also the lead singer of, well, the only singer of the Cufflinks who had the big hit, Tracy. He had a remarkable career and has continued to have one uh, as a singer, producer of people like Barry Manilow, Pat Benatar, and had success as a Broadway producer as well. Shows like Children of a Lesser God and Ain't Misbehaving. Here's our conversation with the multi-talented Ron Dante on Downtown. Ron, thank you so much for being with us. You bet. We're uh, we're set to go and rolling if you're ready. I'm ready. I'm born ready. <laughs> well, I, I guess you were. Uh, with so much to talk about, let's go back, I, I guess, almost to the beginning here. Um, I'm, am I right that it was a, a family friend who was one of the singers in The Elegance, the guys who did Little Star that helped inspire you to a, a career in the music business? They certainly did. Uh, one of the fellas in the, in the group uh, worked for my dad. And he was a close family friend, and he he went from uh, you know working for my dad to being on the road as a star in that group with the with Little Star. So uh, they took me to my first recording session. And you started. I, I watched them record their follow up to Little Star, and it just inspired me. Also, I was a huge fan of Elvis at the time. So uh, that that combined with seeing how records were made uh, got me going. And you started uh, very young. When did you first uh, come in contact and begin working with Don Kirshner? You know, I was uh, just turning 17 years old, and I auditioned for his music publishing company. And uh, the the staff writers there auditioned me first. And uh, they said, well, you you can play guitar and you can sing, and uh, we like the way your voice sounds. Uh, You probably can write a song. So they took me in to see Mr. Kirshner. And uh, he listened to my uh, song, a little song I had written, and said, we're going to sign you to a publishing deal, and you're going to be the staff singer uh, demo maker. I would sing for all the other writers <laughs> at Don Kirshner's publishing company. It was very interesting. Uh, Kirshner, I walked in the office the first day, right, uh, and who was sitting at a desk but Neil Sedaka. The other place was, was Carol King, and then there was another one with Tony Orlando, Wow. And they all were very friendly to me, especially Tony Orlando and Neil Sedaka. 
And one of the, I think, advantages of being a session singer and doing demos is that uh, you learn to sing in a lot of different styles and, and you get to really, uh, if you can do it, expand your vocal range too. It really helped to be asked to sing like the stars of the day, like Gary Lewis and the Playboys or uh, Bobby V or uh, Herman's Hermits, any of those groups that were out. I was very fortunate that I, I had a pretty good uh, range already, so I could sing high, low, and, and I could imitate people a little bit. And that really helped me. Uh, also, I learned the way to handle a microphone and, and how to not over-sing on a microphone when I was doing those demos. So it was, it was like going to music college uh, working in that office because I got to, I've got to sing backgrounds on a lot of people's hits and, and lead on a few of the hits. It was really interesting. How did you get involved with the detergents? Well, at the time, I was still working with Don Kirshner's uh, publishing company. He had been absorbed by Screen Gems Columbia, so it became Screen Gems Music. And my two writing partners up there, Danny Jordan and uh, Tommy Wynn, we, we, were, we were writing songs together. We were trying to write some hits. And Danny's uncle, Danny Jordan's uncle, was a hit songwriter named Paul Vance. He had written Itsy Bitsy, Teeny Weeny, Yellow Polka Dot Bikini. So uh, Danny said, my uncle's doing a session. He needs some singers to come in and do, uh, put, some, put some voices on some tracks. So uh, we, we, we showed up at the studio, and uh, Paul asked us to sing a little, to act a little. And uh, we, we did like five different sections. I never heard it put together until like three weeks later when I heard, uh, heard it on the radio. And uh, it was in the battle of singles for the week. <laughs> and it was called Leader of the Laundromat. I, I didn't know what title was going to be. I had no idea. And then the name of the group was The Detergent. And that's what Paul came up with, you know, kind of a crazy. We were the first Weird Owls kind <laughs> yeah, that's of right. parroting the big hit because we parried it, the, the Shangri-La's big hit of um, Leader of the Pack. And it, it was a great thing to do because it had motorcycles in it. It had a death scene. It was, it was really funny. We're talking with Ron Dante here on Downtown. Uh, 1969 was such a huge year for you now. Now, which came first, the Cufflinks or the Archies? You know, the Archies came first. I was already working with them in 1968, uh, recording for, uh, songs for the TV show, uh, the Archies uh, TV show, animated TV show on CBS. And uh, so I was already into it. But during that time, um, again, Paul Vance called me and said, would you come and sing this demo for us on a song we've just written called Tracy? So I went in, I put my voice down about 20 times on it, and I made up some backgrounds. And I didn't think it would be released. I thought it was a demo for some other artist. But um, about three or four weeks later, that, that came out as a group called The Cufflinks, and it was a big hit. And it was amazing. So The Cufflinks came after The Archies. Yeah, the Cufflinks, I was looking back at some of the old uh, covers of the, the 45, the single release, and there, was, there were three guys on there, but, but you were all the voices, right? Yes, I did a, like a, a whole album in a week. I, I recorded the whole album. I put the voice on, lead voice, then I did, and I made up some background. So it would sound like a group like the, the, the Turtles or the, the Association, a lot of bop, bop, bahs and a lot of stuff on the backgrounds. But, uh, yeah, I, would, I was not on the road with the group that they put together, but they were just lip-syncing most of my uh, lead vocals. Now, Sugar Sugar became uh, such a mammoth hit. We had Andy Kim on the show a while back, and then he told some great stories about uh, the making of the record, uh, the fact that Ray Stevens stopped by to add some hand claps in the recording process, the great work uh, of Tony Wine along with you. And then 
also about how Don Kirshner really showed his skills as a promotion man, getting that song played at a time when it didn't sound like a lot of other hits that were on the radio. It's true. Don Kirshner was the supreme promoter and supreme music man. I mean, he knew a hit song. He knew hit songwriters and producers. Uh, he gave he, he gave more uh, stars their start than uh, than almost any other guy uh, in the music business. So when he was involved, you always knew you had a big chance for a hit record. And uh, he was a great guy to be in the studio with. He was friendly. He always ordered food, and everybody was taken care of in the studio. Uh, it was like it was a great experience working for Don Kirshner, and he always hired the best producers. He hired Jeff Barry one of the supreme right. songwriter producers of the 60s. You also got to show off your vocal range and, and tap into those falsetto skills with the follow-up for the Archies. Yes, well, when they came I was very amazed that the follow-up song was going to be something that was out of my range. And I think they originally wanted that track for the girl singer, Tony Wine, but they still wanted my voice on it. So they said, you sing lead. I said, well, you know, it's a little high. They said, well, just use your falsetto. <laughs> which I, I, could, I always had a good falsetto. So I, I did the whole thing in false, and Tony Wine did the answers. Miss Tony Wine, she was a great singer, uh, did the answers, and I did the lead. But it was a challenge. I was very surprised they put that out as the follow-up to Sugar Sugar because the Sugar Sugar sound, that I, the vocal I put on that was, was the hit sound. And I, I thought they should follow it up with a similar sound. And in a range I could sing. So I was very surprised, although it wasn't a big top 10 hit and it did sell a million records. So, uh, you know, Kirshner was right about that. But I, in hindsight, I would have I would have used my lower voice on, on the follow up. Now, your voice was also everywhere in those days, Ron. You were doing a lot of uh, commercial work uh, and jingles. So what are some of the most memorable ones for you? Well, I did a lot of soft drinks. I did Pepsi, Coke, Dr. Pepper, 7-Up. Sprite. I did. I did a lot of commercials for those. My biggest one was the Pepsi commercial. You've got a lot to live, and Coke. Uh, Coke is it. So I, I did a bunch of commercials. Then I was doing uh, hundreds of commercials a year, uh, and uh, it was it was really my business to be a jingle singer. You go in, they put the song in front of you, you read it, and then you make it sound like a pop song. Um, I was. It was an amazing time because I'd listen to local radio. And in the course of one hour, I would hear Sugar Sugar I, by the Archies. I would hear Tracy by the Cufflinks. And then I'd hear a few of my commercials. So it was like the Ron Dante hour. It was, it was a wonderful experience to, to know that your voice was being heard by millions and millions of people. Now, if I remember right, it was on, a, I think, a shoot for a Coke commercial that you worked for the first time with Barry Manilow and started a wonderful collaboration. Yes, as one of the commercials I was hired for was for a product for uh, Coke or Pepsi, and the writer of the commercial and arranger was this fellow named Barry Manilow. And I, I remember thinking, boy, this is a really good spot. Good, good melody, good lyric, and a great arrangement. So they brought me in to sing along with the group, and the group was Barry Manilow and me, and then it was uh, Melissa Manchester and uh, Valerie Simpson of, from mm. Ashford and Simpson. So it was an illustrious vocal group. All of us had just begun our careers. I also had had a few hits already. So I was like the, the, the only one who had, uh, you know, a couple of chart hits. But Barry afterwards asked me if uh, I'd like to hear some of his original songs. And he wanted to be a solo artist. 
And I listened to him a couple of days later. I heard some of his solo songs, and he played me Could It Be Magic and I Am Your Child. And I said, well, this is a very, very talented guy. I loved his voice. I loved his arranging, and I, I loved his songs. So that started a nine-year uh, commitment to produce records with him. The song that uh, hit for him finally uh, got him some huge chart success, though, was not a Barry Manilow uh, composition. You took uh, a song that had been written and recorded by Scott English that was called Brandy, and uh, you, you slowed it down. How did you find what pr proved to me uh, to be, I think, the ultimate Barry Manilow sound by taking somebody else's song but tailoring it to his skills and talent? It had a lot to do with uh, Barry's arranging skills. Uh, the original demo and the original record of uh, Brandy was kind of up-tempo. It was not a, a serious ballad. And Barry walked into the studio, and we tried it up-tempo. It didn't work. Then he said, well, let me try this. And he went out and he started to play bum, bum, dun, 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 the little lick at the uh, beginning of the song. And that was it. his arrangement made the song. And we only had uh, two other musicians in the studio with him at the time, uh, Jimmy Young on drums and Will Lee on bass and uh, Barry at the piano. So I, I made sure that he was uh, isolated vocally and he sang the lead. And that's the lead that you hear on the record was what we recorded that night with three musicians. Uh, afterwards, um, we took, I, I added background voices, we added strings and horns. And I did a, a supreme mix on it. I, I took my time with that mix, made sure it was perfect for his voice. And uh, Mandy uh, exploded. I mean, people people would hear it on the radio and drive their car off the road just to listen to it. <laughs> now, I read an interview where you said that uh, you thought the best album uh, that you produced with Barry, and I think I would agree with this, was Even Now. Yes, Even Now was a, a labor of love. All the right songs, all the right arrangements, we had, we had moved studios, so uh, we were in another studio that I loved in California. But it was an amazing, amazing time to do the Even Now album. I was, I was so happy to work with Barry. All the, his, his voice was in perfect condition as it is today. And, and he was ready to um, read those lyrics and make them his own. So uh, the Even Now, all, everything came together in that album. I was just so happy to work on that. And as I was to work on all the albums, but I'm one of the, if I had to pick one album, I would say the Even Now album is my favorite. And some great singles, but uh, I, I thought a super song from that album that was never released as a single, but it was a song that Barry wrote with Marty Panzer, a great version of Leaving in the Morning. I, I always loved that one. I, 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 was, I was, you know, we just had so many singles in that album that they never, we never got around to releasing that one because we were working on the next album. So uh, it, it was interesting. I'm glad you liked that one. Uh, it was, it's a beautiful song. And then you went on to uh, produce for people like Cher and, and Pat Benatar. I, what, what makes a good producer, Ron? Well, I, I think a producer has to sublimate his ego to not put his imprint on the production, but, but put the artist's imprint on the production. Always remember that the people listening love the artist and they want to hear the artist. They want to hear the artist surrounded by beautiful things and, and things that enhance the, the vocal. So I think a good producer has to know a lot. He has to be like the jack of all trades, but a, a master of all. He's got to know the engineering side of it, the arranging side of it, the, the vo especially the vocal side of it. When, when an artist gets in the studio and, and starts to sing that song, they have to feel totally, totally secure 
about the environment and that they're being appreciated and they're being nurtured. So I think a good producer has to know all those things. Mm. Uh, I'm a producer who comes out of the singer, singer school of producing. I always, I always think about the singer first and everything comes afterwards. The arrangement, the, the, the engineering, the mastering, all that stuff is secondary. Uh, other engineers, like the great Phil Ramone, who is a, a major in, uh, engineer of great and producer of great artists, uh, was an engineer, sound man, who came out of it from the sound man perspective, I think. Um, the, the, what was on the board, what, what, what kind of um, filters were on the, on the instruments. I, I was always involved in the emotion of the, uh, of the project and getting that across. I think uh, Peter Asher told us a good producer is also a good psychologist. <laughs> <laughs> that has a lot to do with it. That has a lot to do with it. I was very fortunate to work with really, really talented and professional people. Uh, everybody showed up, did their job beautifully, and, and, uh, and I w I w we were always in sync. There was never any conflicts. We're talking with Ron Dante on downtown. Uh, 1978, uh, you continued to produce, but this time for the Broadway stage, uh, a massive hit celebrating the songs of Fats Waller, uh, Ain't Misbehavin' with an incredible cast, Nell Carter, Andre DeShields. What was that experience like for you? Well, it was just fabulous to be able to go into I, all the recording studios in New York are centered in the Broadway district theaters around there so I had always envisioned that someday I might produce and work on a musical that was in one of those great theaters and Ain't Misbehaving was my opportunity a good friend of mine named James Lipton who uh, had the actor's studio show oh, yes. on TV met him at a party and he said to me you know there's an opening for producing uh, Ain't Misbehaving which is at the Manhattan Theater Club and I just loved the idea. I jumped right in, and I helped them secure a, a, an album deal with RCA. So there was a cast album. And uh, I even recorded a disco album that incorporated some of the uh, songs from the Broadway show. But it was a great experience. It's much different than the music business. Uh, the theater business is its own world, and, and, and you have to know... Uh, how to work with these people. It's a very big money thing. And most of my friends in music and records said, don't get involved in Broadway. Everybody loses money. And I thought, well, Amos Behaven is going to be a big winner. And sure enough, it was. Well, and you had big success uh, a while later with a Tony Award-winning drama, Children of a Lesser God. Yes, I was, I was very happy to see that. Uh, I had flown out to Los Angeles to see it downtown. And I called my partner at the intermission, and I said, we should produce this show on Broadway. It's a, it's a beautiful, beautiful show of, uh, that rivals Miracle Worker. I said, it's got such depth. And sure enough, we put together the package and produced that, and won the Tony, and it won a couple of the Tonys for the actors, and uh, became a wonderful film, I thought, with Marley Matlin and William Hurt. Now, along the way, or I think around the time you were producing Broadway shows, you were neighbors with George Plimpton? <laughs> yes. Yes, <laughs> on the Upper East Side. Uh, my, my building was attached to his building, and uh, we became friends. Uh, one night, <laughs> he had a fire in his, in, his, in his apartment, and my wife and I ran in and helped him get his baby out. And uh, we became fast friends, and uh, he had a pool table in his apartment, and we would play pool once a week together. And uh, he, he was one of those great guys that, you know, he did TV, he wrote books. Uh, he, he, he was one of those great people that you, you could never get tired of hearing what he had to say, his stories. He was a very, very close friend, and I, I'm, uh, I was so happy to be his buddy. 
We, we would go to a lane sometimes together. Uh, <laughs> it was it was always fun. And you ended up uh, working with the Paris Review, right? Yeah. And one night it, we said, uh, the Paris Review needs a publisher. The publisher is bowing out. We need the support. He said, uh, let's play this game of pool. If I beat you, you become the publisher. <laughs> and I always had beaten him. I, I, but that night he ran the table. And uh, that's, that's the story. And uh, I became the publisher of the Paris Review. And I got to... Uh, help with the covers the covers were always the best artwork in the world every time they put it out there would be somebody else uh, on the cover that was magnificent and uh, you know we got interviews with the finest new writers around great stories it was again another world that uh, so different than the music business that i was in that i was I, i just had the most fun in because there was so many discoveries in that world meeting people um george's parties you could meet jackie onassis and and and, and muhammad ali and woody allen at the same <laughs> party you know it was like unbelievable i met tennessee williams one night oh, wow he asked me to play a song at the piano for him i said this is a dream come true <laughs> you know? well you're still out there making people smile with your music uh, a couple of years ago was it that howard kalin of the turtles decided to uh, come off the road he had had some health issues and uh, you've stepped in since then as part of the wonderful happy together tour working with mark volman yes i became a turtle I, I tell everybody i am so thrilled to be the lead singer of the turtles i get to sing happy together every night and in these times don't we need happy together mm. it, it just feels right uh, we're going out again this summer another 60 cities we'll be playing uh, from late may to our early september and on the bill will be the vogues the cow sills uh, Gary Puckett and the Union Gap, uh, Mark, uh, not Mark, uh, I forgot the last fella, but the, the bunch of us are going to be on the road again, and uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward. Chuck Nygren of the Three Dog Night will be on the show. So it's a really full night of all hits, and uh, I love being a turtle because after singing the Archie songs, a couple of songs all these years, it's, it was wonderful to have a brand-new catalog of hits that the Turtles had. I mm. had such wonderful songs. They're perfect for a singer like me. Well, and of course, we, we play a lot of those songs here uh, on our station, but what is it about those songs, whether it's the, the Turtles or the Cufflings or the Archies, uh, to think that those songs are still being listened to and finding new audiences all these years later, what is it about them that's given them such staying power? You know, I, I call it the golden age of songwriting and recording and singing. There was no auto-tune people would sing their songs and that's the lead vocal the backgrounds that was the backgrounds they didn't have to fly them in they sang all the backgrounds all the way through but the songwriting was so strong during those years people really took time with the lyric and the melody they 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 crafted such beautiful songs that the songs are going to last hundreds and hundreds of years there's no about look at the look at the beatles catalog Mm -hmm. it's it's as relevant today as as it was the, the years it was created and uh, I, I attribute it to the great songwriters. People, people don't give the songwriters enough credit. Uh, without the song, the songs make the artist to begin with. I always say that. The very first song that makes the artist is, 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 the, is the prototype for the rest of their career most of the time. We've got a wonderful website people can visit, Ron Dante online. It's rondante.com. You've got the albums available, your anthology album, uh, favorites, and much more. So if people want to find out what you're doing, where they can see you, or just get some great music, it's a great site to visit. That's great. Nick, also, please come visit me on Facebook. I have two sites, 
And uh, I, I'm always look, I'm always posting things every day about new things. I'm going to be uh, doing a, a great auction of my uh, Archie's memorabilia very soon for Valentine's Day. So uh, I hope a lot of people come and visit. I really appreciate you making time for us today. You bet. I'm always happy to do it. Uh, radio and, uh, and you guys keep the music alive and well and the stories alive and well. So thank you, Rich. That is Ron Dante talking with us here on Downtown, the podcast. How about a little bonus music? Yeah, we're going to do that for you right now. Uh, John Lodge been making great music for more than 50 years as a solo artist and as a member of the Moody Blues. He's got a brand new live album out called The Royal Affair and After. And we had a chance to talk with John about that here on Downtown. I love the new uh, album and your wonderful version, the live version of Ride My Seesaw with uh, John Davison from Yes. What a great combination. Thank you very much. Uh, John's a really great guy. He's a fantastic vocalist, fantastic musician, and a fantastic person. And uh, we go along so well. And um, I, I just enjoy him being on stage with me, um, particularly on Ride My Seesaw. Well, that song has been around for, what, some 54 years now, but boy, it rings true as much today as it did then. And, and you've said it's a song about growing up. Yeah, it is. And uh, when I when I was listening to uh, the files when I recorded the song again, I was listening to all, and listening to the lyrics again, and I thought, yeah, it's still true today. And um, I, I think, yeah, it's relevant. And uh, yeah, so I was quite uh, excited, I suppose, about that. It's something I'd written all those long time ago, uh, was still seems to occupy a, a space in the mind today, you know? Well, could you guys have imagined back then that these songs would still be uh, not just popular, but have reached so many different generations as they have by today? Rich, I, it, it's a strange thing. You, when we got together and we were recording, uh, <clears throat> we said to ourselves, we don't know whether we're treading a different path to all the AM uh, artists and bands. We're going a different road. And it, we said it doesn't matter if it's successful or not. Uh, we must be able to stand by these songs like 20 years later. And with <laughs> 20 years, with an overestimate <laughs> in those days, to be honest. Sure do not. Now, over the years, how many guys and other bands have said, just a singer in a rock and roll band? You got that one right, John. Nicely done. Well, thank you. And, you know, we're all just singers in a rock and roll band. And every time I'm on stage and look at, out at a, of an audience and people that smiles on their face or playing air guitar or air piano or air drums <laughs> or whatever, uh, you think, yeah, we're all just there, really. There's just some of us on stage and some in an audience, you know. But uh, it's a rock and roll that uh, joined us all together, the, the music. We're talking with John Lodge here on Downtown. I want to ask you about one of my favorite Moody Blues songs from uh, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor, a song that you wrote about your daughter. I just love Emily's song. 
<laughs> Thank you very much, yeah. Um, yeah, when she was born, I uh, picked up the guitar, and it seemed to write it all automatically, you know. And uh, um, yeah, Emily now manages me, can you believe, all these years <laughs> later. And uh, uh, she's been a great supporter, you know. Uh, she's got her own life. Uh, she looked after Michael Palin. Uh, uh, for many years, uh, Michael Palin uh, uh, was with uh, he did Hemingway's World and all these uh, documentaries, right. and, and she, she went to the George Lucas USC and did a masters with George Lucas. Um, but she loves music, and uh, it's great. It's fantastic. Uh, doing that, uh, I remember being on stage at the Royal Albert Hall uh, with the London Philharmonic Orchestra, and I did tell Emily she was in the audience. And uh, we played Emily's song there uh, with the orchestra. It's a great night. That's wonderful. Now, I understand, John, that you have visited with Graham Edge not long before he passed. Yeah, I went. Uh, Graham has been an incredible supporter uh, of my solo career, and um, I asked Graham. Uh, it, it actually, Graham came to my first concert I ever did on my own, and uh, I said to Graham, "You you didn't record your poetry; someone else did. Um, would you record the poetry for me? And I want to do it on stage and every night when I perform." your voice will come over saying your poetry. And he did, and I've got it there, and I filmed it as well. Um, but just before uh, Graham passed away, I went up to see him, um, and we had a really nice afternoon together, and uh, some smiles and some jokes and some sadness. Uh, but it was really nice uh, yeah, we've been together a long time. Well, you'll be here in New England uh, coming up in March. You've got uh, several shows in New England, including three in Connecticut. More information is available at your website, johnlodge.com. How's it feel to be back doing live shows again? I can't wait. I did, uh, a couple of weeks ago, I booked a rehearsal studio with a stage, lights, sound, and everything. And we got together and uh, we performed the concert <laughs> just for our friends and uh, the road crew and all that. And it was great just to be able to do that. And uh, two years, it's, I've never had this length of time uh, not playing uh, live. So uh, it was great in, in just the, that environment. So I'm really looking to be back on the road, you know, have base world travel. Thank you so much. Thanks for all the great music through the years. We wish you good luck with the album and on the tour as well. Thank you very much, Richard. That's John Lodge of the Moody Blues talking with us about the Moody's and his new live album, The Royal Affair and After. We'll take a break. A word from our friends at Cross Insurance. And when we return, we come back and talk with actor Matt Delamater. 
from the Tender Bar. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super-regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. from the soundtrack of the new motion picture directed by George Clooney and starring Ben Affleck, The Tender Bar. Well, one of the actors who uh, makes such a, a terrific film as part of the ensemble in the bar that's owned and operated by Ben Affleck's character, Uncle Charlie, is Maine-based actor Matt Delamater, who plays Joey D. We had a chance to talk with Matt about the film and his career. What are you thinking of the response to the film in the early days here? No, I'm re- I'm really excited. I think I think the, the, the response is um, is is wonderful. I mean, it's you know, it's one of those. You know, you're always biased when it's your own project. Certainly, certainly a project like this with such incredible people that are really actually genuinely incredible people. So I I would be lying if I said I wasn't rooting for this kind of response. But it's you know, it's also it's just a, a wonderful story. It's a real story. It's a you know, it's a coming of age. Uh, you know, you know, a success story in many respects. And and I, I really felt like. I felt hopeful that people would really would connect with that. Certainly, certainly in this time right now, where you know, kind of a feel good, uh, good story is, is probably pretty welcome for a lot of folks mm. right now. So, so, no, I'm excited. I'm really happy. But you never know. There's so much. There's so much good content out these days, and you never know what what people are gonna what's gonna connect with people. And so, yeah, it was really exciting to to see the the early response. Now, had you read the book before you got the opportunity to be in the film? You know, I had I had read it a while ago. I'd read it a couple years after the book came out. I was uh, I had actually taken a like a memoir uh, class at University of, uh, of Southern Maine, and uh, like a uh, after college, um, and uh, and I, we 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 read that book, and I loved it, and uh, and so it was just it was kind of in my mind, and I was like, oh, and so when I saw that project uh, come up through the through the casting world and with my agent, I, you know, I was really excited about it because that's that's all you ever want to do as an actor is you know, play a, a real human in the world, you know, a real character. And, and, and Joey D was that. And so I was, I was really excited. And it helped too that they shot the film in Massachusetts, which made about a couple of months on the set, right? Made that a little bit easier for you. 100%. Yeah. I mean, I, I always joke, you know, I don't, I don't think, uh, I don't, I don't think I ever would get, I would have gotten close to a movie set if, if Massachusetts hadn't, uh, hadn't passed those wonderful tax incentives that they have. And, and hopefully maybe someday Maine will have, um, because it's really it's given me access to, to these types of projects where, you know, if, if it was only uh, New York or L.A. Or, or Atlanta or something, I, I, you know, I probably wouldn't get as many opportunities to do. We're talking with Matt Delamater about the Tender Bar here on Downtown. Now, working with George Clooney had to be a treat. We keep trying to get him on the show. He may have a little bit too much going on uh, for us, but, but we've talked to so many people who've who've been in his orbit and who've worked with him, and they all say the same thing, that uh, this is just uh, he's a, he's a working actor, uh, even with all the success, and he's an actor's director and a down-to-earth guy. 100%. I mean, I you know, I think anytime you get a phone call where, where, where somebody, you know, a casting director says, you know, you're, you're George Clooney's 
number one choice for a role. I think the, the only response is jumping up and down a little bit, you know, like a kid, because he, he is, you know, he's been one of my favorite actors for over a long, long time. I love his work. And, you know, he is everything that you hope him to be. He is kind. He is grounded. I think he very much connects with himself as his, you know, early days in acting as, you know, as, as just, you know, hustling and, 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 and working really hard for the roles. And, and he is, a, he's an incredible director. Uh, he works incredibly well with, with actors. It, it, it's truly a dream to get to be on, on George Clooney's set. And, and he's just a wonderful guy. It, 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 so, yes. A hundred percent. And uh, it was such a great role for Ben Affleck. He's getting some uh, some awards attention, and I think deservedly so. What was he like to work with? You know, it's funny. He, you know, Ben. You know, he, he's he's a big star, man. And it's always it's always you know for me at least it's always a little you know intimidating when you get when you have to work on when you when you get to work on sets like that, and because you want to you want to do a good job, you want to rise to the occasion, and so you never really know. And so you know, uh, he Ben was an absolute delight to get to work with he is probably one of the hardest working actors i've i've ever i've ever had the 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 luxury of working with and he's always prepared he is he's incredibly generous as an actor like he listens he's with you on on every one of your takes as much as his his own and and it really it really helps create a, a, a genuine uh environment that i think is is makes the work a lot better and so i i was just it was it was to get pretty much every single one of my scenes was with Ben and, and, and uh, Max Casella and Michael Braun, who played Chief and Bobo in, in the Dickens scenes. And so just to get to kind of have that and to get that right out of the way where there's no, you know, big star kind of, uh, you know, you know, you know, intimidation issues. He was just one of the guys an incredible man to work with and I, I think he deserved every bit of every bit of praise well the, the Dickens scenes were so good first of all I well I want a bar like that in my town and uh, yeah the the relationship that you guys all have uh, Max and, and Michael and Ben and you uh, with especially with uh, the young uh, the young JR uh, Daniel who's yeah, Daniel, such Daniel. a yeah. terrific talent but boy those scenes were great and and you guys you're all just such pros that you made those characters very real Oh, thank you for that. It's a pretty, you know, it, it, you know, obviously, any chance you get to work with with incredible people, I think it it, it only makes you better in a lot of ways. I, I feel really lucky on that, you know, on that on that point. But yeah, Daniel, I mean, that that was Daniel's first film. You know, it's like it's amazing, and he had he had such honesty. He he, you know, I think I think in a lot of you know, sometimes child actors get a hard time or something because they're new and sometimes can be challenging. Or but but he was such a delight to work with, and I think a really good reminder of that this work is fun. You know, it's, it's like, we, we, it's, it's really fun work. And he just had a blast every day on set and so did the rest of the guys in it. And, and it was, uh, it, it was honestly, it was, it was a trip to get to in the middle of COVID be going to work every day, sitting at like a smoky bar with a bunch of people drinking fake beer, smoking fake cigarettes, when that is not something you could do <laughs> in any way, shape or form outside the walls of the South stage. So it was, uh, it was a very surreal experience in multiple ways. Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that, Matt, but I, I think that's that may also be one of the reasons why the film resonates so much because I found myself watching it saying, oh, yeah, that's that's one of the other things that we don't get to do as much anymore. And just, just to have that, that camaraderie, that group of, of guys uh, together giving each other a hard time like you do. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I, I, I told many people that I think my favorite day 
you know, the, the, that first week was, you know, was the first week of shooting. We did a lot of, we did a lot of the, uh, the, the 80s scene that the scenes would tie. Um, and, and we just, it was, it was just like a blast every day. It was like a, a, a bunch of guys just giving each other a hard time. And then, and then to get this, and then to, we had this other day, which was like my favorite day on set where we got to go play softball all together, <laughs> which you see it in the beginning of the film a little bit, but we basically had this day where we, we, we were, you know, where the guys from the Dickens had like a softball team and we were playing and we, you know, Ben was pitching and we all got to kind of play, you know, play softball for the day. And, and George, a former professional uh, baseball player in the, in the, I believe he was in the Reds organization. He's a really good athlete and a really good baseball player. And so I, I think I called my dad. I got home, you know, that day I was like, I, I got to play pass with George Clooney for like, <laughs> 30 minutes and pitch to him. Like, was that real? Did that really happen? That was crazy. It was just, yeah, it felt very much like I'm getting paid to do this. This is crazy. It was, it was, it was, it was a wonderful time. Now you've got uh, not only a day job, but a really good one. You're the director of finance at Oxbow Brewing. How does, how does that work out with a film career? You know, I'm, I'm really lucky. I was a former banker. I, I worked in banking for a long, long time. And, and when I first started in acting, and I, and I always joked that I kind of had to, like, you know, use all my vacation days and, 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 uh, and hide to go to, a, you know, to go to auditions and so on and so forth or whatever, you know. Uh, but, uh, but Oxbow has been a dream. I, found, I, I actually got the job when I, was, I had a theater television show called Local Brew TV on YouTube. And, and they're a wonderful creative company. They really value, you know, people having all their creative pursuits outside of just their jobs. So and because I'm, I'm the finance guy, I don't, you know, I'm not the one making the beer, so to speak. So I have a little bit more flexibility on that front. So that allows me to kind of, to, to kind of work remotely and some stuff that I need to. So I get to juggle it all. And I think at the end of the day, Rick, you know, the, the actor's credo, you know, don't quit your day job. You know, you never know when the phone's going to ring again. So I feel really lucky I get to, to be a part of a passionate group of people, amazing people like, like the team at Oxbow and get to do this work on, on, on stage and on sets well, when I can. You're, you're preaching to the choir. I'm a full-time high school teacher. Uh, the radio I do on the side and then uh, do acting and improv on the side when I get a chance. And it's, yeah, it's great to have a, a full-time gig that keeps you anchored but gives you the flexibility to pursue those other passions. Yeah, and we're Mainers, Rich. We all got to we got to wear multiple hats, right? You know, like you know, that's that's what you do. You know, you you, uh, you you got everybody's got three jobs. That's how it works. You know, we got to keep busy. But yeah, I, I, to me, I think it just keeps me sane because I think if I had to, uh, if, you know, and as much as I have so much respect for for uh, working actors that, that that just work nonstop, and and I'd be lying if I said I didn't want to be one of them someday. But um, you know, I, I think for me, if I had to only wait for that phone to ring i it might i might go a little crazy so uh, you know plus i had this whole other part of my brain as a as a business person or a you know financial person that i i'm really lucky that i get to use too and, and it kind of makes me really grateful for when i get you get to be on on set or on stage so you were also in a you were in a terrific movie uh, back uh, five or six years ago that took place in maine it was shot in massachusetts uh, with jason sudeikis i really love tumble down I love that as well. Yeah, and I, I, I'm getting to work with Sean Mishaw and uh, his wife Desmond Hill, and, and that that whole crew was was a dream. And, you know, I, I've worked with Sean a lot since on on stage projects in Maine, and um, I love that film. And I, uh, he he was talk about a real, you know, delightful human to work with, Jason Sudeikis, man. And I, and you know, he deserves all the praise and and. Uh, 
accolades he's getting for his work on Ted Lasso. But yeah, he, he that was a, and, and Rebecca Hall as well. She, she's just such gifted people. We were, I love that. Thank you for bringing that up. I love that film. Wonderful film. And you also did a terrific series. Of course, Stephen King owns our station, but we're not biased at all. But uh, Castle Rock was great. We had Melanie Linsky on the show, but that was a really good series. Oh, I love that. You know, any, I mean, come on, you can't, being a Mainer growing up, you can't not love Stephen King, and he's such an incredible writer. And I love that, you know, he makes, they bring so much of his work to life. Um, so, yeah, I mean, any chance, uh, you know, I'll do anything that a Stephen King associated with it if I'm lucky enough. Yeah, I, I love that project. And, and, uh, and just anytime you get to kind of dive into a world like that, like, you know, they, they took over this little town in Mass and, and made it, made it that world. And that was, that was a, it was a dream. It was really cool. Well, you know, acting, uh, it's, it's about talent, obviously, first and foremost, but also getting to know people and networking and, and having this relationship now with George Clooney, Ben Affleck. Uh, that's got to help. And I have to think uh, this performance in this wonderful film is going to open even more doors for you. You know, I think that's always the goal, Rick, is, is, Rich, is that, that you get to do more, you know, work leads to work. And, you know, my, my rule, I, I always try, I can't control so many things in this world, this crazy acting world, you know, so I, I always try to show up on time, you know, no, you know, try to add, you know, value to whatever I'm doing. And, and, and hopefully, even, even if they're like, man, you know, that guy wasn't a very good actor, but he was, he was good to work with, you know, he, he worked hard and, and I, I, I'm proud of the work in this film. And, and I was lucky enough recently to get to work on an NBC show, uh, Chicago PD, and that was in a one uh, that aired last week. That was a wonderful, wonderful crew of people to work with. So, hopefully, hopefully people see it, and you know they they uh, they, they 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 keep giving me more chances to get to do it because that's certainly the goal. I remember a director telling several of us years ago in a show. I look for the three A's when I cast: affability, availability, and ability. And the first two are a lot more important than the third one. It's true. You know, and it's such a, you know, and there's so much luck involved in timing and this, you know, you don't, you know, it's like, you know, I, I joke, I, I auditioned for the, for uh, Joey D, you know, in, in my son's bedroom, you know what I mean? And <laughs> sent it out, sent it out into the ethers in the middle of, you know, kind of the second COVID winter or the first COVID winter. And, you know, in, and then, you know, a month later you're, you're on a, a set with George Clooney. So I, I have always liked the possibility that, that acting presents, you know, uh, in, in that way, you, it can, you can look at it cynically, too, and be like, the phone's never ringing. But I, I like to choose to think that the phone could always ring. <laughs> so you just got to keep swinging. <laughs> so I, I, that, that's, that's what I like about this word. Well, it's a great ensemble performance and a wonderful film of The Tender Bar. Matt, uh, thank you so much for making time for us today. Congratulations on the great work, and we wish you continued success. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I lo love your show. Lo love uh uh, you know, I hope you have a you're having an awesome new year. I really appreciate appreciate being on. Be well. That's actor Matt Delamater from the Tender Bar visiting with us here on Downtown the Podcast. Our thanks to Matt, John Lodge, and Ron Dante, and thanks to you for joining us this week on the program. We remind you that the podcast is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time here on Downtown.